Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Gary Nissenbaum, the managing attorney and founding principal of the Nissenbaum Law Group, which you can find on the web at gdnlaw.com, with offices in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Texas. How's it going, Gary? It's going well, and, and I must tell you, I'm really looking forward to this interview. I've heard a lot about you. I've listened to some of the uh, podcasts and so forth, and I really think that you're a terrific interviewer, and I think this is going to be a lot of fun, and hopefully, uh, more important than that, interesting for your audience. I think, okay, so I, I don't have a general love of lawyers. I have had lawyers save my butt multiple times, so I don't, I, I don't dislike all lawyers, but- what I'm really curious about and and that I think you can speak to is more about uh, being a lawyer. Like, I, I'm not looking for legal advice in this interview. So I, I think this is really going to be it's going to be fun based on what I've read about the way that you work and why you work. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, at the top, though, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about what you do and about your firm. I've been a... Um business lawyer, a commercial lawyer, my entire professional career, which has spanned over three decades. Um, and what we've done is created a boutique law firm of about seven to nine lawyers who, as you said, have offices in four states. Um, and uh, we practice in other states as well. And the basic thrust is that people with business issues or businesses themselves can come to us and we can handle almost anything they throw at us, whether it's litigation, whether it's transactions. The interesting thing I think for your audience is that lawyers go where the clients need them. And it became clear to me 15 years ago that where we needed to be was in this digital age. And so from the very beginning, um, at the first times that there were websites and e-commerce back in the mid-90s, uh, we started uh, representing uh, companies that um, were selling on the web. Uh, we've now branched out into video games, apps, entertainment law. Um, we do a lot of copyright trademark. And essentially, a lot of what we're doing is in the digital world. Uh, and we found it to be very rewarding. Uh, and frankly, a lot of the ways in which our clients succeed, we've borrowed for our own uh, law firm and the way that we, we practice law. So it's, it's really been a good fit for us and it's put us on the side of the future, so to speak, which is really where your listeners are, um, which is one of the reasons I'm on this podcast as opposed to a podcast about some other industry. Uh, so that's where I am. So uh, Regarding that, what kind of uh, give me an example of the kind of practice that you might have picked up from a successful client and applied to a law firm? Scrums. Um, <laughs> Agile most, lawyers, most lawyers do not know what that means unless they play rugby. Uh, and I will tell you that um, we had a major uh, digital client uh, that was uh, handling a, a deal that was, I think, a $24 million deal, and they needed us to help them in terms of pulling together all the requirements under the contract. And um, so we would sit in on their scrums. And what we began to see was that this idea of having everyone who's involved in uh, putting together a complicated undertaking such as building a website or building um, a, a digital software uh, application for some machinery and that kind of thing. 
applied perfectly to the practice of law. And so what we started to do is uh, every other day, uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we will have the entire law firm uh, on a call in which we are all going through everybody's cases. And so everybody knows everything. And since so many of our cases are handled by a team of lawyers, um, we are able to make comments about what other people are doing, tell them about experiences we've had that they may not be aware of, um, and basically help one another to keep everything on track so it's all coordinated. It's very rare that we have a situation in which somebody says, you never told me that. We don't get the you never told me that thing. Um, with us, everybody's telling everybody everything. Uh, three times a week. And we generally don't charge the client for this. Uh, most of that is, is just our, we eat that time. But we find that using that concept, which came from your world, that is something that people from the digital world came up with and use, I assume, because it's impossible to build a sophisticated digital application without each person knowing what the other's doing. I assume that's why you do it. It really did apply to law. And the interesting thing is, I know... Very few, if any, lawyers who have picked up on that yet. I think in the future, you're going to see more of it. I imagine so. I think that kind of, uh, uh, if you look at like Microsoft Windows back in the 90s, uh, it, a lot of the issues that it had were because entirely different groups of engineers weren't talking to each other. Right. Um, so yeah, I think it was born out of necessity in the tech world. If you want to build something that complex very quickly, Absolutely. But I think it does apply to all, uh, all group work environments, unless you're working entirely on your own. What I was, what I was really um, impressed with was when the uh, Obamacare um, uh, app and uh, digital offering for the um, uh, new health insurance plan that he put forward failed. And what he did was he brought in somebody, I believe it was from Google, if I'm not mistaken, who was one of their top people and had them move to Washington, borrowed them, I guess, for a couple of months, created a scrum, and basically the entire government that was involved in this uh, digital offering of health insurance to people who are uninsured uh, transformed. And I think it was in a, a few weeks, it was back up, and maybe a month after that, it was functioning perfectly. And I read how they did it. And they were saying things like, there are no stupid questions. If some, if you screwed something up, don't worry. You have to tell us. Don't worry. We're not going to you know, fire you or anything. You know, People were given a positive, um, energetic, uh, forward-leaning approach, which is kind of a Silicon Valley approach, to a Washington bureaucracy. And it was exciting to see how well that went. Unfortunately, uh, it didn't take in other Washington bureaucracies, <laughs> but, but it was exciting. I wish that uh, Minnesota's ACA website had, uh, <laughs> it's still horrible. Anyway, so aside from tech, uh, I see the term psychodynamic. Uh, I've, I've heard that regarding your practice. Can you tell me what that means? Sure. Um, a lot of what we're doing is borrowing from psychology. And the reason is that what psychologists do and what lawyers do has a tremendous amount of overlap. Um, I'm seeing people uh, at the best time of their lives 
and at the worst time of their lives. Uh, the best time of their lives might be when they're starting a business and they're ready to go and they're finally living their dream. Well, those people need to be realistic if they're overenthusiastic, if they're in denial about what can go wrong, if they're basically driving the car with an accelerator and no brake because they're in some kind of uh, state of mania, because they just want to get everything done at once. They don't want to hear about anything to hold them back. In other words, magical thinking. Um, it's my job to say the thing they don't want to hear, which I think is very similar to what uh, is involved in therapy. And uh, it's the worst time of their lives. Sometimes when they come to me, they could be sued or they could need to sue somebody, or they could have something going wrong in their lives and they need a lawyer or else it's gonna just continue and go to a very bad place. They're emotional, um, they're distraught. Uh, you know, if I can approach them on a human level um, and not just talk about procedure and legal concepts, but talk about the humanity of the situation, empathize with what they're going through, I may be the only person that they can speak to freely. And, and Brett, let me tell you why I'm the only person they can speak to. Because when they speak to me, it's governed by the attorney-client privilege, which means absolute secrecy. I mean, if I were subpoenaed, I would not reveal what they're telling me. And so the point is that I may be their only link to the rest of humanity when they're going through something they're too embarrassed or just too shaken up by to deal with. And that is more than just a legal issue. That is also a human issue. And it's about how people deal with one another and help one another with empathy. And that's how I try to approach the law. That's intriguing. Uh, it's not the concept that I generally uh, associate with lawyers. Well, um, there's a reason for that. Um, there are really two types of law firms there are high volume and low volume. And the lay public generally does not see it that way. And I'm gonna give you an insight that I hope is helpful to your listeners to understand why lawyers behave the way they do. Most law firms, the ones that you're familiar with generally are high volume, which means that they are small law firms that take in generally everything that comes in, in every area of the law and they, they follow the 80-20 rule, which is if 20% uh, of the cases make the money and 80% either don't make money or are losers, it's fine because the net is that they more or less are in the black and they go forward. But the problem is they're taking in so much work and not refusing work. So there's, there's no titration of any of this that essentially um, they can't return phone calls easily. Um, they can't have meetings. They can't go over things a million times. They can't hold your hand because there's no time for it. And that's why so many people complain. You know, I, I, I hired my lawyer. He sounded great. And then every time I call, the secretary tells me he's in court. The secretary tells me he went home. The secretary tells me he's preparing for a trial and they can't get you on the phone. They can't get an answer. You know, I sent that thing in three weeks ago. How come my lawyer didn't get back to me? That's what we hear. And it's because we overload ourselves with client matters because of the, the, the thought that we have to just bring in everything because we don't know which things are going to be profitable. The other way of running a law firm is low volume, which is, I think, the minority of law firms where you basically dig into a certain area of law and that's all you do more or less. 
So it could be workman's compensation or it could be um, criminal law or it could be matrimonial law, or it could be what I do, which is commercial law, business law. But either way, you're so focused that essentially you're turning away most of the work. So you're still following the 80-20 rule, but what you're trying to do is only bring in the 20 and not even take in the 80. And if you're able to figure out a way of of doing that, generally it has to do with really learning one area well, you're able to then spend time with the clients and tend to their needs in a way that you're that you can't in a high volume practice. And I think if you see it that way, you would understand why sometimes the interaction with a lawyer is gruff, difficult, uh, non-empathetic. That's really why they're rushed. By the way, uh, just a footnote on that: you really see this in medicine because. <laughs> Medicine now is about moving the patient in and out. Seven minutes in out. Seven minutes in out, and then do the electronic filing to get to get reimbursement, and you wait six months. And so doctors talk about this all the time, that they're being forced to become high volume, and they can't do what we used to call bedside manner with their patients. So I'll assume then that low volume practices do turn down clients? It's amazing how many clients I turn away. Um, I try to be um, even empathetic even when I do that because I, I refer them to another, another lawyer. And I know many lawyers who practice in areas I don't want to practice in, I don't practice in, um, such as personal injury. I don't do that. But I know many people that love that stuff. So I, I, I try to not just abandon them. I try to, to, to keep it moving and get them to somebody else or get them to a good website, that sort of thing that for a directory of lawyers. But essentially, I am turning away easily um, 95% of the work that could be coming my way, either turning it away or can't come to an arrangement with somebody that, that's satisfactory to me and them uh, and to them. So when you think about it, I mean, a business that's turning away 95% of the work coming to it, that last 5% better be the right people. And that, I think, is the, is the skill set that you have to develop as an attorney to understand what the client's asking you to do and have the, um, I guess, the uh, sense of uh, honor that you're not going to take something in that you really don't know how to do or that you're not going to take something in that you think is a loser, but the client's willing to pay you to do it. I mean, you just have to be ready to just turn things away because it's the right thing to do. And if you follow that, you end up, I think, with a a set of clients who are loyal. And hopefully that's what we've done. So are you saying that you only take cases you know you can win or you only take cases that you feel are worth taking? Um, it's interesting. It's, it's really it's really neither of those. Um, uh, we Obviously, it has to be worth taking in the sense of, of, of how you use the word worth, not necessarily financial. But we're, we're not, and it's not about winning uh, because we're very aggressive about trying to win for our clients and we, and we negotiate very hard and we litigate hard and we're trial lawyers and all the rest of that. So we like to win for our clients. But uh, the way I would look at it is that 
if I can bring something to this encounter to help this client in a way that they will not be helped otherwise, if there's something that I can bring that's a value add, it could be that I've done the same thing that they're talking about 20 times and I kind of know where the situation is headed and I just have a gut sense that it's going to settle or a gut sense that it's not going to settle and I know exactly how to handle it. Um, that's what I'm talking about. You know, if I'm, if I'm listening to a client tell me about their matter and it's clear to me that they are shooting themselves in the foot and I, I can give you a perfect example because it comes up practically every couple of days. And that is business people who have built their businesses and done a phenomenal job uh, because they maintained iron control over everything and did things themselves. They got their hands dirty. They think that that means that they can write their own contracts. They think that means they can go to the internet, steal somebody else's contract and just put their name on it. And now they have a contract or they have terms and conditions and they have a privacy policy and on and on and on. And it doesn't work that way. And so they come to me, they show me the contract that they put together and they say to me something like, why don't you just, you know, take a look at it for an hour, give me your thoughts and that's all I need from you. Well, I could just, you know, spend the hour, get paid for the hour and, and we're good to go and, and tell them whatever I want to tell them or I could do it the right way. And the right way is not what they want to hear. <laughs> the right way is, hey, I'm not going to do that. That contract that you did is a mess. It's a disaster. You never should have done it yourself. And what you need me to do is you need me to start it over again and do a custom job for you. And it's not a form. And we got to do it right. And if you're not going to do it right, I can't be involved in it. And, and tell them things they don't want to hear. And, if I, and Brett, if I, could, if I could distill this into one sentence, it's that good lawyers tell their clients things that the client does not want to hear. And that's why you got to tell it to them with empathy and you, you, you know, you, right. But you got, but they have to hear it. And what people don't want to hear is that it's going to be complicated. They want to hear it's going to be simple. Very few things in my business are simple. So are you in charge of hiring the lawyers that work for the firm? I'm the managing attorney, so so I'm engaged in the hiring process, and we have a very involved hiring process um, that kind of deals with these dynamics. Hiring the right people is one of the hardest things. Yeah, I was going to say, right. like if you if you have this kind of um, credo behind like the clients you take and the reputation you carry, I would assume you have to be very careful about who's working for you, because I think we could both agree that not all lawyers even want to work in the way that you're describing. I, I, I have known lawyers that really are the kind of uh, TV portrayal shark uh, ambulance chaser types. Um, and I would assume you have to weed out anyone with that kind of goal. That's not the issue for me. Um, I don't I don't find that that comes over my transom. And frankly, the idea that the lawyers are sharks and they just want to sort of go after the money and don't care about people, I rarely see that. Um, I think that's a, that, that that's a sense that the client or lay public may get from the media or from their own interaction. But that's because you're seeing only part of the larger whole. There's something more going on there. There's very few people that I've met in my life who are 
only oh, for sure um, yeah. right uh, motivated by money there's usually something more to it like money represents something to them but let me let me give you a moment uh, on this because i think you might find it interesting about how we hire because you're absolutely right hiring is the key um we cannot have angry people working for us and the problem with my profession uh, is not so much that it it brings in sharks or people that are, are money hungry. That's not the issue I see. The issue I see is that it rewards anger. And sometimes the anger can be close to pathological anger. Um, it's an adversarial process. And so someone who is fighting and loves to fight and loves to humiliate the other side is rewarded because they may very well be so difficult that the other side backs off and <laughs> gives them a good deal. And so now that becomes a so-called good lawyer. The problem with that is, again, you're driving a car with an accelerator and no brake. If you are an angry person and you can't control that, you will do very well in situations that demand the lawyer be angry uh, and adversarial and obnoxious and difficult. But there are many situations that do not demand that. And if you can't change it up because your anger controls you, uh, rather than the other way around, uh, you can't work for us. And so the first and foremost thing that we did is we weed out angry people. Um, and it's, we, I think we're pretty good at that uh, because I, I can't imagine the last time that anyone slipped through who, who was. Um, the second thing is that we, we had the first interview we do, which is a rather short interview, um, when we get past the pleasantries, we do something that I've never seen any other law firm do, as a matter of fact. Doesn't mean they haven't, just that I haven't seen it. And that is we start asking substantive legal questions. I cannot understand why when you interview for a law job, the interview does not involve somebody asking legal questions of the interviewee. I need to know if you take this profession seriously and if you know the stuff that you were taught in law school. Nothing I'm asking is, is difficult. It's all stuff that you learned for the bar. If you pass the bar, you know all the questions I'm asking. But I want to know if you learned it for the bar and then promptly forgot all of it because you don't care or whether you are passionate about being a lawyer. Once we get past that and I feel this is somebody that, that would fit with us, um, we have a second interview. The second interview, instead of being 10, 15 minutes, second interview is like eight hours. What? That interview is where we do metrics. And that's another thing I've rarely seen law firms do. We have a very, very involved test. And, the, and I ask them to write uh, a two to three page preliminary statement for a brief. And I give them a hypothetical. So it's an actual part of a brief that they would, I want to see how they write. I want to see how they advocate. I want to see how they cohere information. Uh, we ask them to look at a contract and to give us their input on changes they would make. We ask them interview questions. I want to see what this person is to work with. And I want to see how they write. I want to see um, how they, they can express themselves. And most important, I guess, or one of the important things is if they fall short, I want to see how they deal with that. Um, I mean, I, I've seen situations in which someone doesn't know something. They should know it. Well, one example of how to deal with that is to apologize to me and, and apologize and apologize more and then apologize <laughs> as they're walking out of the room. I can't have lawyers who, when something goes wrong, they're going to apologize to all the authority figures in the room. I'm sorry, it does not work. 
I need somebody who's going to look at the, look at me and say, you know what? I should know that. I, sh- I'm, I feel bad. I don't know it. By tonight, I'll know it because I'm going to go home. I'm going to look it up and I will never get that question wrong again. Well, that's, those are two different reactions. And yeah. I need to see that microcosm of how they would interact in order to in order for these people to to fit within our collaborative process. Remember, we have seven to nine lawyers, but they're all doing the same thing. We're all working together on commercial work. There are no other, you know, generally speaking, there are no other practice areas besides commercial, including ethics. So essentially, we're all collaborating in a sense. So we have to all work together. I got to see that you can work with us. So is the uh, w- when you say seven to nine, is is there a turnover rate or is that an average or are there like two almost lawyers? Why, why is it seven to nine? Our sweet spot is seven to nine lawyers because we split the practice into litigation, which is going to court and transactions, which is um contracts and the purchase and sale of a business and commercial real estate and things like that. So I need to have a nucleus of two to three people in each one. And then there's me. And then we have additional people who can navigate between the two as the, as the work comes in, it gives us that flexibility. So the, the, our business model works with between seven to nine. If I went over nine, we'd start to fray at the edges because I need quality control. Although who knows, maybe we could figure out a way of doing it. And if I go below seven, um, I find that it's difficult to get everybody on the same page. So I need that that sweet spot. And it, and it, it moves because you're right, people come in, go out, but we don't have a lot of turnover. Um, but certainly when, when somebody does move on, we wish them well, we bring somebody in. There, there is some overlap but not always. And so sometimes we, we go down from seven up to eight, down from nine, that kind of thing. Sure. Okay. So you've talked about empathy and anger, and it sounds to me like there are a lot more emotions involved in the practice of law than I had previously assumed. Is that, is, is that what I'm, am I hearing that correctly? Well, you, you absolutely are from, from the vantage point of commercial law and what we do and, and the, the digital clients we work with. You know, uh, the people in your audience, the people that do what you do, um, they're brilliant people. They could not do this without really being smart. But there's something about um, developing an app, developing a video game, developing an e-commerce site uh, that is very, very solitary. Uh, there's a lot of, of work where you're alone, focusing in on something and not really dealing with anybody else. And so there's, you know, a type of individual who kind of needs somebody to sort of navigate the rest of the world for them. And I find that that if we serve that purpose, if we give them sort of a, a way of keeping the outside world from intruding on them while at the same time giving them the advantage of being able to navigate their way and get what they want, such as a, an employment contract or, or a disengagement contract, a dissolution contract, or some kind of, of IP, um, intellectual property royalty agreement, those kinds of things work well because they tell us where they want us to go and we're the ones that go and do it. Um, I will also tell you that um, our firm transformed when we started to apply emotional intelligence uh, to the practice of law. And I don't know if you're 
listeners are all familiar with emotional intelligence. It's something that people, a term people throw around a lot. Um, but there's a book that that we I read many many years ago called Primal Leadership by by Goleman, G O L E M A N, and what he was doing was explaining how in the workplace, if you can teach two things to your to the people you manage, um, you can excel. And the first is uh, that the leaders, the people running things, self-manage their own emotional state. And the second thing is that the people that work there are not handicapped by anger. That And, and so it really is about having a workplace and, and in our case, a client relationship where you're able to not give in to the pressures of the situation and not give up your and let yourself get emotionally hijacked. Um, there are plenty of things that happen in my day where I'm aggravated by them or things don't go the way they should, or people don't do what they should have done, uh, clients or vendors and things, usually not people that work for me, but usually outside people. And I don't let myself get emotionally hijacked by it. I, I respond, I don't react. And that's my goal. Um, the same time, if I can, foster a situation in which you're in a work environment where people are not stabbing each other in the back. They're not gossiping about one another. They're not putting each other down and laughing at one another derisively. Uh, if somebody doesn't know something, your job is to, is to mentor them and help them learn it. Your job is not to make fun of them because they don't know it and, or, or put them down uh, and think of them as a bad person because they have some flaw. Um, those sorts of concepts. And I think a lot of this uh, has to do with applying these concepts of emotional intelligence to the practice of law. And when we did that, this goes back to maybe, I don't know, 03, 2003, 2004. When we started doing this, we found that our our practice blossomed. We, we, we number one, had many more um, employees here. The firm just grew. Second, um, the client base grew. Uh, it just, and so what I, what I ended up doing was I created a PowerPoint about this book that I would teach internally at our law firm. Um, I insisted that everyone who worked here, uh, read the entire book. And I actually bought it for everyone in the firm, including the, the administrative staff, everyone. Uh, and we would have discussion groups about it. You know, what can we do about this workplace to make it more emotionally intelligent? Uh, and it seemed to really take off after that. And so I would, I would recommend it to anybody who feels that their work environment is toxic. Okay. Uh, so primal leadership, the, the title of the book sounds to me like, um, I, I'm going to try to say this in a level headed way. It, it sounds like something that like a wall street lawyer would read to try to be a quote alpha male is it but what i'm hearing from you is that that's not really right the, and i know why you're saying that it's not primal in terms of alpha male um it's more primal in terms of primal emotions um there's a concept uh there's there's a, a bio bio the biochemistry of the brain is a very important part of this there's something called the limbic system 
Uh, and for those of, of, of your listeners who know, I'm sorry to be repeating something they already know, but basically the limbic system is a system of your body, of your brain that deals with emotion and they are very primal emotions, meaning anger, hatred, disgust, shame. Those primal emotions come from the limbic system. And what we've learned scientifically is that when you feel that kind of emotion, it lasts a very long time. And there are, are physical reasons. There's hormone, hormonal reasons and biochemical reasons. Whatever that is, the bottom line is it doesn't go away. Whereas happiness, lightheartedness, relaxation, enjoyment, you know, these things are ephemeral. They come and go. They don't last. So essentially, if, I, if you're in a workplace and somebody says something insulting to you, that will stick with you for the rest of the day. You just won't be able to get rid of it. In fact, you'll probably be up at night thinking about it and how what you should have said, what they shouldn't have said, and so forth. Whereas if somebody walks in the workplace in the morning and someone says, gee, that's a nice tie, uh, you know, you always dress really well, you'll say thank you very much, and two minutes later, you forgot they even said it. So the idea is to understand that, the, that emotional states have uh, different valences. The valence of these states are different. They last longer. The, the half-life of them is longer and shorter. And by understanding that, you learn not to let your emotions hijack your performance. That's the idea. Okay. Um, have you? I have a friend who is going through a like uh, a mindfulness seminar, not seminar, like um, weekly course right now. And one of the things she told me about was uh, a culture. I don't remember a, a tribal culture where their way of saying, instead of saying, I am angry, they would say, anger is passing through me right now. And it was this way of acknowledging that this, that the limbic system was processing something, but it wasn't who they were. They didn't own the anger. It was just something that was present in them at the time. Have you, have you read about this at all? I've experienced the concept uh, through Tai Chi. And ah, Qigong. Yep, yep. Um, I, I have practiced Tai Chi for many, many years uh, and Qigong. And um, honestly, it, it was a physical manifestation of a lot of these things that I was learning through the practice of law uh, and managing people and managing client situations. You can't be angry and practice Tai Chi well. Um, and one of the concepts of the Chinese martial arts is that when someone attacks you, you um, do not meet force with force. You step out of the way. Um, the concept that you use leverage so that they're using their own force against them and that, in fact, the concept of loving your opponent, that you never uh, have an adversary, a physical adversary that you hate. You have, a, you have love for this, other ad, for this adversary. They're part of the human condition. They're part of the entirety of humanity. It's just that you're in an adversarial position and you will use their... Um, strength against them. All these concepts are directly applicable to the practice of law, to litigation, um, to dealing with transactions and negotiations. They're all applicable to that to that same thing. Uh, when I was uh, working out with uh, Chinese martial arts, um, I, I my instructor would constantly say, "You never walk into a room without knowing how to get out again." 
And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I have told clients who want to do something impulsive, stop. <laughs> you never walk into a room without knowing how to get out again. We can go down that road. How the hell are we going to get off that road? You know? And so a lot of this is the, is the concept of maintaining your balance of grounding yourself, that, that mindfulness that you're talking about, that Buddhist concept of mindfulness, which is so important. Um, do I really need to be the smartest guy in the room? Do I really need you to tell me how much you appreciate what I did for you? I mean, do I really need any of that? I don't. And, and even in the, in the concept of social justice, you know, I do a fair amount of social justice work. It's something that, that, is a passion of mine. And one of the things that I, I like about social justice work is that um, I don't know the people who are being benefited by what I do. And they don't know me. And they'll never thank me because they don't know who I am. And I'm not doing it to get their gratitude. I'm doing it for what it does for me and what it make, the kind of person it makes me. And that's it. And that's where it stops. And I think that that approach, you know, taken across the board seems to work in just about every profession, but especially in law where there is so many adversarial situations and there's so much tension in this, in the room at, at, at certain times. Sure. If I can take that a little deeper, uh, what does social justice work do for you? Um, I have a special skill. I've been an attorney for 35 years. And in that time I have dug deep into uh, the law and regulations and, and how this all works. Um, right now, America, um, which has been very good to me, um, is hurting. It has a fever. It's sick. Um, and I'm not just talking about a particular political party. I'm talking more about the fact that um, the social media has created an anger and a venom and a trolling that is inhumane. People are being destroyed. People are being lied about, defamed, hurt, and nobody seems to care. It seems like when people who are authority figures are undermined um, for things that they that, that that are gossip and innuendo, such as our celebrities deal with, um, everybody seems to laugh at it and find it uh, funny and um, entertaining. Um, it, it just seems like there is a lot of a lot going wrong that's to my mind not the best of america and so i kind of feel that if i didn't get involved on some level to help some of the people who are dispossessed in this in this world um people who are um hurting financially uh people who might um, be disabled and, and unable to care for themselves um people who can't defend themselves uh, if I didn't use my skill set to help them, then shame on me. Um, and so I honestly don't really have the time to do it. And I'm a very busy person. I got managing, you know, practice in four states and all the rest of it. But I don't care. At a certain point, I just have to get involved. And so I have um, assembled a social justice team in my law firm. So even though we are commercial lawyers, uh, we have uh, two lawyers and a paralegal who are tasked with, and I'm one of those lawyers, um, uh, getting involved in advocacy work. Uh, and all of it is centered around people who cannot defend themselves well. 
and are being taken advantage of by society. And so essentially the way I look at it is that I'm taking a law firm that was really put together uh, to give high quality legal services to people who can afford it um, and using it instead for people who can't afford it and would never even be able to come close to hiring a lawyer, a law firm like this. And I'm giving them this service. And that's what I want to do. I got to say, that's fascinating. I had no idea. I I, I don't like to talk about it because the more I talk about it, the more it seems like I'm looking for credit or I'm looking for people to think I'm wonderful. I really am not. I'd rather that it be done completely in secret. And I had no idea you were going to ask that. I never would have raised it. (laughs) Uh, I warned you about that. Well, yeah, not about the social justice. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is that that uh, I I don't like it when people use this as a platform to make themselves look good, and I'm really I'm against that. I want to 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 do this under the radar, and when you think about it, you know, you it's funny you, you started this interview by talking about the fact that lawyers have a bad reputation and sometimes are seen as sharks. I would urge you to think about the fact that most of the good that lawyers do is secret. It's governed by the attorney-client privilege. It's done within the ambit of a, of, a, of a privileged secret relationship where they can't divulge what's going on with their client. And so you don't really know some of the things that we do to help people, um, to cut them a break, to discount a bill, to uh, give them advice that maybe they didn't ask for or they didn't hire us for, You know, make connections for them, whatever. There's a lot of lawyers who do that, and um, they're like, it's like anything else. You know, you, you have to see them as three-dimensional people. Yeah, no, I'm liking this. Um, uh, one more on this topic. Do, do you as – I have to assume that as a lawyer, you're fairly pragmatic in your thinking. Um, I feel like that's a pretty common trait for people that go into law. Um, social justice – has like like the immediate reward can be just a well it feels good to do something you know is right but then if you extrapolate there's often uh long-term benefits that will ultimately get back to you are those things that you consider it's interesting that you say it that way because you don't even realize it but you're intuiting where i went with this um i do my social justice work is different than just about any other law firm I know. Uh, Most lawyers I know who do social justice work represent um, impoverished people. Uh, Someone's being kicked out of their apartment. They can't hire, they can't afford a lawyer. Somebody, you know, needs somebody to help them with some kind of uh, assault case and nobody will represent them. The public defender isn't available, whatever the reason is. These are individual one-offs for poor people who need legal services. I'm not doing that. I don't do any of that. I I find that to be something that's generally being covered by my colleagues. I want to do something different that's not being covered. And the thing that I came up with was um, social change through uh, statutes and regulations that could be that could be modified. And so what I do is I uh, represent nonprofits uh, that are involved in advocacy work. And it could be advocacy for all all the things you could imagine, all the things you would come up with are the same things I would come up with that are on the table now in our society. I go to these nonprofits and I donate my time and I say, I will help you 
in terms of understanding the law, what the law is, what the law could be, what the changes that we need are, um, and maybe coming up with a proposed bill that could be submitted to the legislature or proposed regulations that could be submitted to an, to a, uh, an executive agency uh, or a, an amicus brief, which is a friend of the court brief in a case that's already ongoing. And um, so essentially what I'm doing is I'm engaging in advocacy work to help a wide group of people in a certain area of social justice. That's where our focus is. I can appreciate that. All right. So we're getting to a point where we're going to want to switch to the top three picks if you want to do that segment. Yeah, I, I would like to tell people, um, I'd like them to visit my website if, if they would like to learn more about our firm and kind of, we do have some resources on there, especially in the um, apps and video games and e-commerce uh, areas uh, that they might find helpful. Our our, our law firm is the Nissenbaum Law Group, and it's uh, gdnlaw.com, gdnlaw.com. Um, so if you take a look at our website, if you want to contact me, it's gdn at gdnlaw.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Um, if you. If you liked it, if you liked what you heard today, we'd love to hear from you. If you didn't, you can keep your thoughts to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we should also mention that you do, uh, I don't, we, cause we haven't covered it a lot, but you do specialize in IP and, uh, legal, legal aspects pertaining specifically to developers. I won't say specialized, but you do cover that. Yeah, you know, um, we do all the different areas of business law generally, uh, with a few exceptions. So basically, almost anything a business could throw at us, we, we more or less have, have done or can do. But the thing that we seem to be focusing in a lot about is is developer work um, and and people who code, people who have companies that 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 market apps and video games and 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 e-commerce websites and things like that. We we do a lot of that stuff and we find it very rewarding. So obviously that's why I'm on this podcast and I and I want to reach out to your to your audience. But the, yeah, that's that, that's a lot of what we do and and we're going to continue to do it. You're totally right, by the way. The vast majority of developers I know are the type of people who have a ton of ideas and a ton of skills. But when it comes to writing the uh, you know privacy agreement and dealing with all of the legal details of running a business, not necessarily our forte. You're signing restrictive covenants without reading them. Uh, confidentiality agreements, non-compete agreements that involve not hiring people, non-hiring agreements, not hiring people from your previous job to work in your new job. These things have varying levels of enforceability, but the idea is that you're not reading them. And if you are reading them, you're not a lawyer, so you're only not you're not gaining all the the benefit of what a lawyer would see in those things. And as far as opening businesses, I see people constantly. Uh, opening businesses where they uh, are not focusing on on basic issues like insurance, like uh, budgeting and and how they're going to raise money and and how the ownership is going to be allocated and in in what way you're going to not just have the ability to to invest in your business but also the buyout. Remember, I said 
Uh, you don't walk into a room without knowing how to get out again. That's a buy-sell agreement. You don't get into a business without knowing how to get bought out again. And so there's a lot of those concepts. And so what I like to say is you can deal with me on the front end or the back end. The front end is when you're starting your business or your employment or your independent contractor arrangement. The back end is when there's a problem and we're facing a lawsuit. It's better to do it on the front end. I will say that the last time I ran a, a real business with employees, I paid a lawyer to not only incorporate, but set up all of the like dissolution agreements and everything. I, I was very grateful that when I did dissolve the business, um, it was, it was worth the money I spent up front just to make sure that there were no issues. I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> no, really? That, I like that when someone's happy with their lawyer, uh, I don't hear it enough. So that's uh, good. Yeah. He was, he, he was one of the good ones for sure. Turns out, you know, 3D people, a lot of good ones. But yeah, so that brings us then to the top three picks where we go one at a time and you get to start. And I have to warn you in advance, my picks are going to throw you off because granted, given that you are not uh, a tech person per se, I had no idea what you were going to pick. So I picked some kind of crazy stuff. Okay. <laughs> well, I think there's mine, no mine theme are a little here. bit off too. So who knows? All right. Awesome. No theme. No theme is where I like to go. Um, first is um, Star Trek Discovery on CBS Access. I got to tell you that I have been a Star Trek fan uh, forever since since when I was a kid in the uh, in the uh, late '60s, early '70s, and I was not particularly. Um, uh, happy about the fact that they were going to do uh, Star Trek Discovery. It didn't sound like there was gonna, it was going to work out from the fan uh, comments on blogs and so forth. Now that I've watched it, I've been pleasantly surprised. I think that they took Star Trek in a completely different direction. It works. It makes sense. It's, it's fascinating and entertaining. And I was really impressed with it. And, and I got to say, it, it, it's the kind of Star Trek that couldn't have even been made five years ago. There's no way with the themes they came up with, and yet it works for this era. So that's one of my favorite things right now. I have to sadly admit that I watched the first two episodes of Star Trek Discovery, which has the unfortunate uh, initialism of STD. Um, so like we all call TNG, like next generation TNG. Yep. Yep. Are, what are we going to call discovery? Just, just <laughs> D I, I assume, but I don't know. CBS. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so I, 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 I didn't get hooked. Like I absolutely intend, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. If, if it were a, a Star Wars, Star Trek argument, I'm Star Trek all the way. But Discovery didn't hook me. And part of the reason was the Orville came out at the same time. And I was enamored with the Orville because it was it hearkened back to like the TNG themes and brought in uh, social commentary that even Roddenberry would have shied away from. So have you seen the Orville? I have not seen the Orville, but you know, you're not the first person to tell me that. So maybe that'll be my fourth pick. <laughs> maybe <laughs> I'll do that next week. Who knows? I, I, uh, I will yeah, go. I, I will go catch up on Star Trek Discovery, and I, I do recommend checking out the Orville. 
It's a deal. The initial previews of the Orville looked like it was going to be just a satire on the Star Trek idea. And it's not. It's actually its own standalone Star Trek-esque show. All right. Um, so my, my first pick is my new yoga mat. Um, it's the Dragonfly Performance Pro. I, uh, I had previously, and it, it was a pick a long time ago, I had gotten a, a, a 100% like natural rubber mat. And this thing weighs probably, I'm, I'm imagining in my head, I, I would say 20 pounds. It's really heavy. Um, so I got a new one after that one started to wear out. And this one is uh, composite of materials. Great traction. I have sweaty palms, so that's important to me in yoga. And uh, so good traction. It's heavyweight. It's it's firm, but still padding. I'm super happy with it. Uh, you can pick it up. I guess sub pick would be yogaaccessories.com. I'll link to that as well. Uh, they regularly have like buy one, get one sales. Uh, so if you have a yoga friend, you can get one for half price. That's my pick. <laughs> that sounds like a good pick. Can, now I get to do one? You do, yes. Okay. Uh, the Gift of Therapy by Irvin Yalom. Uh, Irvin Yalom is somebody that very few people have heard of outside of psychotherapists, and yet just about every psychotherapist has heard of him. This is a gentleman who's in his 80s right now. Um, he's He was one of the developers of group therapy in the 70s. And he's written a number of books, but they're accessible to people who are not trained as therapists. And it explains the process of therapy and the concept of existential uh, psychotherapy, which is the idea of how you confront your mortality and how the way you confront your mortality also envisions the way that you confront your life. And I have been listening to this on Audible. And I've just been blown away by the simplicity of the prose, but also the complexity of the concepts. And so it's just one of my favorite things. And when I'm in the car, I listen to it and it's just something I look forward to. And I commend to your listeners, it's called The Gift of Therapy. And the other book that I read by him was Love's Executioner. So I, I love that description. Um, simple prose and complex ideas. Is that how you phrase yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I guess that would be my <laughs> if I were going to if I were going to read if I were going to pick out a a book on a topic like therapy or anything psychological, that would be the review I'd want to hear. That that led me to a question. Sure. That what? No, I dropped it somehow. <laughs> Do you want me to go to my third thing? <laughs> no, no. I have a second thing. Okay. Completely unrelated again. So I have, I, I was replacing a faulty receptacle, uh, like outlet in my kitchen. And I decided to put in a uh, one that had two grounded outlets and two USB ports. So I could run my Amazon Echo off of it. And... The box was too short. The new the new receptacle was too deep. The box didn't have enough room. The wire nuts I was trying to fit over these 12-gauge wires. I had to, three 12-gauge three wires, and then I had to piggy tail one out. It wasn't working. I couldn't get them. I couldn't get the wire nuts tight enough 
to stay in place as I tried to compress it all into the back. And I found what has existed for a long time, and anyone who's done enough electrical would absolutely already know this, but for anyone facing the same amateur situation I was, walnuts, W-A-L-L dash nuts, are these, uh, you can get them in twos and fours, maybe more. Uh, they're little boxes of type that you, you you stick the wire into and it locks like permanently. If it's a braided wire, you're not going to get it out without cutting it. So once it's in, it's in and you just pop in the, you know, up to two or four different wires and they'll stay. You can cram them into the back of your, your box and no problem. So I, I, it's a high recommendation. I if, can understand why. <laughs> if you're, if you're wiring anything, get some right. walnuts. So, um, my, my third one, which, yeah. um, is a little bit, uh, serious and maybe a little heavy, but, uh, but I feel it, uh, passionately, uh, is Emma Gonzalez. Uh, Emma Gonzalez is a high school senior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High. She's the young woman from uh, that was involved in uh, that day when the uh, the massacre occurred uh, in Parkland, Florida. And she's the one who got up and started calling out the adults for not passing um, some sane level of gun control. I'm not saying it should be everything everybody wants. Uh, you know, there's many different ways of, of, of skinning a cat on this one. But the idea that 97% of, of the country, I think it's 97% of gun owners, want background checks. And, and want even 70% of NRA members. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and this young woman, Emma Gonzalez, who uh, is a senior in high school, got up and gave a speech that, I mean, to say the least, she's not prepared for. I mean, who could prepare for this, right? It just happened. And it was done as well and as convincing as any lawyer I've ever seen in court. And to have a high school senior have that kind of poise, uh, that kind of um, vocabulary, that kind of passion and ability to convince um, was was striking and in a in a time when i i sometimes feel that we're going off the rails in a very bad way in this country uh for a lot of reasons uh to see a young woman like that and frankly to see the other kids from that class who just seem to be able to articulate a a clear and powerful rage that their generation has at not being protected by the adults is extraordinary. And um, I found it, I found it to just be very, very moving. And I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that I was just impressed with what I saw. Does this one feel different to you? I, uh, the, com uh, the combination of well-spoken and outspoken teens combined with the viral nature of uh, social media. You, you know what I would say? I would say they're too young to be hopeless. 
Um, you know, it, it takes a number of years to get to the point <laughs> of being hopeless and really feeling like, hey, nothing's going to change. And I've seen this all before. They haven't seen it all before because they haven't lived long enough to see it all before. And so their enthusiasm and their youth is a strength because uh, they actually believe things can change. And, and it does feel different. Um, and boy, oh boy, if that's if that was the generation that started to lead us, I'd be thrilled. Do you know who Emma Goldman is? Yes, I do. Of course. So I have a pit bull named Emma. She was named after Emma Goldman. And I feel like she may have just found a, a, new, <laughs> a new namesake. Exactly. Well, you know, our heroes seem to be co-opted. You know, there's people who who seem to do, do something extraordinary. And then over the years, they seem to just be pulled to center and they end up sounding and talk and t- sounding and acting like everybody else who is an authority figure in this country. And I just have a feeling that this generation may be the exception. They may hold on to this enthusiasm. And, and if I can say it, uh, basic uh, American character uh, yeah. in a way the rest of us may, may have not. Yeah. I, that, I, I love your last pick. Excellent. All right. So my last pick is going to maybe, I, I don't think lighten the mood is because that was super inspirational. So this is just a dud now, but um, uh, focus or focus F-O-C-O-S. It's an app for the iPhone uh, on iPhones with the dual camera, such as the 7 Plus and the 10 and the 8 Plus, I guess. Um, it basically it lets you do something similar to portrait mode, but with full control over the f-stop size, over the uh, brightness and darkness of the foreground and the background. And you can basically recreate and edit all of the things that uh, portrait mode in the camera would do. And I've had a ton of fun playing with it. I'll also link uh, Allison Sheridan did a uh, kind of tutorial video on the app. That's really good. So that'll all be well, I have the eight. I just got the eight. So this is terrific. <laughs> did you, did you get the plus? I, I think I did. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll have to confess that our <laughs> law firm has an IT department who tells us what to get so it can integrate with our system, which is more important to me than anything else. Uh, but I believe it was it was the A plus. So I will I will ask him about that. Yeah. That sounds like Check it out. Then. It's fun. Okay. All right. Well, that brings us to the end. Um, we'll definitely mention the website again. Uh, GDN. That's- Go ahead. G- GDNlaw.com. G-D-N-L-A-W.com. Nissenbaum. N-I-S-S-E-N-B-A-U-M. Nissenbaum Law Group. And I'd love to hear from your listeners. Thank you. Is there anywhere else you would want people to find you? Uh, that's the best way. Um, and, uh, you know, an, an email is the best way to get in touch with me. So um, GDN at GDNlaw.com is Perfect. my email. All right. And I'm Brett Terpstra. I'm TT Scoff on every possible social media service. And you can find me at brettterpstra.com. And Gary, it was great talking to you. you you've, uh, you've changed my overall uh, intuition about lawyers.
then my work is done. <laughs> that was my whole whole aim, and it, and I accomplished it. I must tell you, this has been one of the most enjoyable interviews I've done, and and you are terrific. Oh, thank and, you. And and your audience is terrific. I've I've looked at the site, and uh, I got to tell you that um, it's it's really been a pleasure. So thank you for making this such an enjoyable experience. You're welcome, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll see you in a week. Take care.